Hi there. Thanks for downloading this episode of SpexCast. It's 2017. That means a whole new season of our space exploration podcast, and with it, your chance to make it even better. We'll be introducing some new changes to the show in the coming weeks, and we'd love to have your input. Shoot us a tweet at RITSpecs, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com, and we might even read it right here on the air. Thanks! Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil Linden. And I'm TJ Terzotz. And today we'll take a close look at the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be the largest and most advanced space telescope ever when it launches in late 2018. To guide us through the science and tech aboard the web, here we're with Matt Greenhouse, project scientist for the Science Instrument Payload. Matt, welcome to SpexCast. Phil, happy to be here. Okay, so to start things off, um, how did you start with the James Webb Space Telescope, and what are some of your responsibilities as project scientist? Well, I started uh, almost at the beginning of the project. The uh, project began in 1996, and I joined in 1997. And my role on the, on the project has been to uh, be responsible for the science instrument payload uh, on the observatory. And uh, I've been doing that now for almost 20 years. Wow. Uh, so this, this project's been around for a while. Um, what, what's your background and expertise uh, to begin with? Well, I'm an infrared astronomer, and uh, I'm an experimentalist. So uh, much of what I do is uh, development of science instrumentation uh, and related technologies, uh, in addition to uh, using uh, those instruments uh, for science. So uh, back in 96, when uh, the JWST project began, that's still around the time when Hubble was doing um, great science. It, it still is today. So like where did James Webb fit into uh, NASA's long-term goals and, and what were the initial uh, experiments in science that was desired? Well, uh, we recognized uh, even then uh, that Hubble would have to need would need a successor. The Hubble Space Telescope uh, can't last forever. Uh, we expect that it will be good through about uh, 2020, and so there will be overlap between the HST and the JWST. Uh, but the JWST is the successor uh, to the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, not just replacing the physical hardware. Uh, but with all of the accomplishments of JWST, science has moved in a direction where uh, we need different tools to carry on the exploration. And JWST is designed to provide different uh, observing capability than the HST to enable the ongoing exploration of the universe. What challenges has the program encountered since 96? <laughs> well, there's been a lot of them. Um, JWST uh, is an infrared telescope. This is one of the biggest differences uh, with Hubble, uh, apart from its size. To observe uh, the very early universe, which is a key goal of JWST, is to observe the uh, first stars and galaxies to form uh, after the Big Bang. Those primordial objects uh, emit their light in the UV part of the spectrum, where Hubble is designed to observe. However, uh, that, uh, the wavelength of that light is stretched by the expansion of space as it travels to us 
uh, from that early epoch. So to observe it today, one needs to observe in the infrared spectrum. So the JWST is an infrared telescope. In building an infrared telescope has uh, a lot of unique challenges, one of which is uh, the telescope has to be cooled to uh, nearly absolute zero. JWST will, be, will operate at about 40 to 50 degrees Kelvin uh, above absolute zero. And so, uh, and that's to ensure that the telescope is not blinded by its own self-infrared emission. As, as uh, you may know, all objects above absolute zero emit infrared light. So if, if we had infrared goggles on uh, and you look around the room you're sitting in now, the walls and floor would be glowing, uh, our bodies would be glowing. And so to suppress that self-emission, uh, we have to cool the JWST. And when we started the project, when we first wrote down what were the science objectives of JWST, we immediately ran into two key problems that, that almost stopped the project, but we solved both of them uh, early on. One was, uh, if we want to observe these first objects in the universe, those objects are very, very faint. And so we determined that we needed seven times the light gathering capacity of the Hubble Space Telescope to see them. And we also realized that we needed to build this infrared uh, telescope, which required cooling. When we quickly realized that the size of the mirror that we would need uh, would be larger in diameter than the biggest rocket. And then we also realized that there was no mechanical cryocooler, no mechanical refrigerator uh, that could cool an object as big as JWST um, to the temperatures required. So we had a packaging problem and a cooling problem uh, that faced us uh, right off the bat. We solved those problems uh, in the way that you know may be obvious today if you look at the uh, JWST. We adopted a segmented mirror architecture for the primary mirror. The primary mirror it has a collecting area of uh, about 25 square meters. Uh, but unlike most telescopes, we didn't just build a 25 square meter mirror. We build it out of uh, 18 hexagonal segments that can be adjusted to play together uh, as if they were a single mirror. And that segmented architecture allowed us to fold the mirror up inside the rocket fairing, which is five meters uh, in diameter. A lot of engineering challenges there, but uh, that's the approach we went down and uh, went down it successfully. Then to cool the telescope, the telescope is about six and a half metric tons. So it takes a lot of cooling power to cool something that large. And we realized that we could never do this if we put the JWST in orbit about the Earth the way the Hubble uh, is in orbit about the Earth because the Earth and the Moon are just too bright in the infrared. And uh, so we had to find another place to put the observatory where we could cool it. And we realized that the second Lagrange point of the Sun-Earth system was an ideal uh, place for solving this problem. This is a point in space that's about 1.5 million kilometers in the anti-Sun direction uh, from the Earth. 
And this location is ideal for two reasons. One is that when one is at the L2 point, the sun, the earth, and the moon, these unwanted sources of heat, are always in the same direction. So we realized that we could deploy a giant sun shield that would allow the telescope to always live in the shadow of the sun shield and still be able to observe any spot on the sky over the course of uh, a year. And in this arrangement, where the telescope is living in the shadow of the sun shield, it can cool passively to the cold darkness of space and reach its desired temperature of a 40 to 50 degrees Kelvin. So that was one good thing about the L2 point. The second property that the L2 point has that makes it ideal for JWST is that an object placed there can have exactly the same orbital period as the Earth. As you know, as one gets farther and farther from the sun, an object orbiting the sun has a longer and longer orbital period. And uh, so if we just went to a spot, in s some random spot in space that was at the same distance, the orbital period of the JWST would be greater uh, than that of the Earth, and the Earth and JWST would slowly move apart from each other over the course of the mission, and our telecommunications range would become very, very large. The L2 point has the wonderful property that an object placed there has exactly the same orbital period uh, as the Earth. So our telecom range to the Earth remains constant for as long as the JWST mission um, uh, lives. Is James Webb going to be the first space telescope to be at Lagrange Point L2? No, there's been several. Uh, there is a NASA telescope called uh, WMAP, uh, is a, um, a follow-on to NASA's COBE mission that, um, for which a Nobel Prize was awarded. And it is, its mission is over, but it, was, uh, uh, it operated at L2. Uh, there are two ESA missions that went to L2. Both uh, those missions are complete, the uh, uh, Planck mission and the Herschel mission. And the successor to JWST, a mission called WFIRST, will also follow JWST to the L2 point. So um, back to the James Webb's science goals, uh, it seems pretty focused to be um, infrared looking at very old uh, stars or very old bodies far away. Like, is it very directed in, in scope or is JWST meant to be uh, very versatile for all infrared observation? Yeah, it's the latter. Uh, JWST operates from uh, the red end of the visible, 0.6 microns, uh, out to a mid-infrared wavelength of about 28 microns. It has enormous science capability. And it's designed to support a very wide range of science uh, just the way uh, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, is. Uh, but we have to, in designing a system like this, we have to look at the sort of the corners of that range. What are the, um, what are the requirements that we need it to do um, to embrace the full range of science uh, to ensure that we build a machine that has the science capability that we need. And so the, the primeval galaxy objectives had the special, uh, what we call an engineering driving requirements on the system you know, that we just discussed. But the, the uh, JWST has uh, rich capability for other types of science. For example, 
Um, all of the JWST instruments have coronagraphs, which uh, are uh, optical devices that allow the observatory to observe exoplanets, planets that orbit uh, stars other uh, than our own. JWST uh, will do uh, spectroscopy of the atmospheres of exoplanets to give us the chemistry of those atmospheres and to look uh, for uh, signs of life that might be um, uh, seen uh, in that chemistry. Uh, So-called biomarkers, chemical signatures that uh, uh, would not be expected um, absent a biological process. That uh, JWST will do a lot of that work. We've put into the JWST uh, non-sidereal tracking to enable it to observe the planets of our own solar system and uh, the debris disks surrounding our solar system uh, to learn more uh, about how planets form, how our solar system works, and to enable uh, planetary uh, comparative uh, planetology, if, if you will, uh, an effort to understand exoplanets, uh, how they differ uh, and work relative to the planets of our own uh, solar system. The infrared capability that we put into the JW, JWST to see the early universe also allows us to see through clouds of dust that enshroud uh, star formation regions in our own galaxy uh, and others. And so with that infrared capability, uh, JWST can provide a new window on the details of how stars uh, form. Uh, so it's a very wide range of science that the JWST will do. Uh, like HST, the most important questions that the observatory will answer and the biggest contributions that it makes to science are things that we're probably not even thinking about today. And uh, so uh, the JWST should have impacts similar uh, to the Hubble Space Telescope and will be used by astronomers all over the world from all different space science disciplines. Yeah, that's a very impressive list of features. Um, <clears throat> when you were initially designing this mission, were those readily apparent, or are those things that once you designed that huge folding mirror became possibilities? Uh, most of it was, most of the capability, I, I would say all of the capability uh, in the observatory was put there uh, deliberately. Uh, we knew from the onset that there were a few driving uh, science cases uh, that we, we needed to enable, science cases that would shape the engineering design of the JWST. But while we were doing that, we, you know, we were very aware uh, that uh, we were building a machine that had a much broader, far-reaching, and deeper science capability than those few cases. Okay, so... The most striking and iconic feature um, of the James Webb Space Telescope are those 18 hexagonal gold mirrors. Um, each one is like a meter and a half wide, and there are 18 of them. Um, but one thing I found interesting um, was that they were made of beryllium and coated with gold. So all we see is the gold, but they're actually beryllium. Uh, what's so special about beryllium? And um, it seems like a very uncommon uh, building material. What why choose beryllium for the mirrors? That's a great question. Yeah, beryllium, well, it's not uncommon 
Uh, but it's certainly not the least expensive thing to work with, and it's also very difficult to work with. So why did we choose something like that? Most telescope mirrors are made of glass. Sometimes they're made of aluminum. How did we uh, settle on beryllium? Um, when we're, this is a cryogenic telescope. It's the telescope mirrors operate at about 50 uh, Kelvin. And as the telescope slews across the sky, there are necessarily thermal gradients that form and change uh, in the mirror. And as you know, a telescope mirror has to have a very precise shape or figure, as they call it. And uh, in order to have those thermal gradients not spoil the figure of the mirror, we needed to find a material that had a low coefficient of thermal expansion at the operating temperature of 50 Kelvin. That was the primary driver for the choice uh, of beryllium. Beryllium has that property. Beryllium, uh, in addition to, that's the driver, other figures of merit for selecting a material are uh, stiffness and um, density, stiffness and weight. Weight, controlling weight is a premium in building anything that flies, whether it's a spacecraft or an airplane. Uh, beryllium is, is very, very light. And uh, the figure of merit in making a telescope mirror like this in terms of weight is called aerial density, the uh, kilograms per square meter of area uh, in the mirror. And uh, this mirror is about six times lighter than the Hubble mirror, six times lower aerial density. And so uh, it is the current state of art uh, for building lightweight uh, telescope mirrors. Interesting. Now, uh, with the segmented mirror, you talked about um, thermal expansion. Do those segments help thermally isolate each individual segment? Or are we talking about changes that are within a few centimeters or millimeters inside each of these? Now, the, the uh, the segments aren't really thermally isolated uh, from each other. They'll, we want them to all be at a uniform temperature, but there are gradients that will form across the whole mirror as we uh, point the telescope uh, in different directions. And the low CTE, low th coefficient of thermal expansion of beryllium, uh, enables us to tolerate uh, those gradients. The reason we segmented the mirror was so that we could fold it up inside the rocket. So you, you mentioned um, beryllium is good, uh, has a good thermal coefficient or of expansion at 50 Kelvin. Um, obviously, when we're building the James Webb Space Telescope, we're at, you know, 293 Kelvin. Um, does that impact how the, um, the telescope is uh, assembled or tested? Like, do you cool it down to 50 Kelvin to calibrate and test the mirrors? Or um, do you have to do some crazy workarounds in the clean room putting these mirrors together? The fact that we're operating it at 50 Kelvin and building it at room temperature impacts a lot. So the first uh, impact is polishing the mirrors. As you know, telescope mirrors are made by, you know, rubbing gritty stuff on their surface. Um, and that's a room temperature operation. So if you think about it for a little while, you realize that uh, we have to polish the wrong shape in at room temperature so that we get the right shape at 50 Kelvin. Uh, that is done through the magic of computer modeling. 
but computer modeling's not perfect. So we had to follow a very complicated, lengthy, iterative process in which we would polish the mirrors partway, and then we had to uh, send them to Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, where they were put into a space simulation chamber with special optics test equipment so that we could measure how the actual mirror figure was tracking to our model. We would then make corrections to the model and send the mirror back to the polishing house. And so that iterative process <clears throat> uh, was done. And then we had to do that for all 18 uh, segments plus the spares. Uh, so that caused the telescope mirror to uh, take a long time you know, to build. Then uh, whenever we test the JWST, uh, we have to test it in a space simulation chamber so that we can simulate the environment that it will be going into and uh, simulate, and actually not simulate, but actually achieve uh, the cryogenic operating temperature so that we can ensure that things work the way we expect them to. And so uh, there's lots and lots of space simulation chamber testing. JWST is big, and so the final step of testing involves the largest cryogenic uh, vacuum chamber in the world uh, located at Johnson Space Flight Center. It's called Chamber A, and it's something that we refurbished from NASA's Apollo program. This chamber was originally used to do the thermal testing of the com Apollo command module and its service module. It's actually a man-rated chamber. The astronauts were inside the chamber back in Apollo days. We're not using it in a man-rated uh, way. But it is in that chamber that we will do the end-to-end -end optical test of the whole JWST uh, observatory, and that will begin uh, later this year. That's a test that we didn't do on the Hubble Space Telescope program with consequences that you're probably aware of. So although that test is very difficult and expensive, uh, uh, we are doing it on this program. That's especially important since uh, the Hubble was in low Earth orbit and it could be serviced by shuttle missions, but James Webb uh, won't be since it's at L2. Um, one more, one last question about the mirrors. And I think this is something that comes to mind when everybody sees James Webb Space Telescope. Is bigger always better for having a, a larger mirror? Um, you mentioned having the sensitivities to detect um, the, the main objectives. You need a lot of light to be gathered, which means a bigger mirror. Does that mean if we want to see the faintest items, we can just um, find clever ways to make ginormous mirrors or mirror arrays? Or is there a cutoff? Is there a, a sweet spot? Uh, where, where does that lie? That's a great question. The, uh, the, the two drivers for uh, the size of the telescope mirror are collecting area, which determines how faint an object can be observed, and then also angular resolution, the ability to see fine detail in uh, what one is observing. Uh, the angular resolution is uh, also determined by the size of the mirror. Uh, so on this 
mission, the JWST, we needed seven times the light gathering capacity of the Hubble Space Telescope, so that required a bigger mirror. But we also wanted Hubble's angular resolution. We wanted to match Hubble's ability to see fine detail, but at a longer infrared wavelength. Uh, our uh, a telescope's ability to see fine detail is uh, given by the wavelength divided by the telescope aperture. So to have Hubble's angular resolution at a longer wavelength, that also required a larger mirror. So those are the drivers on the size of telescope mirrors. And bigger isn't always better, but the mirror needs to be the right size for the science objectives that the mission is trying to address. So if you, if you went bigger for more light sensitivity, would you get away from the optimal um, wavelength driver? Is that how that would work? No. Uh, if, if we made the mirror bigger than it needed to be, um, then at any given wavelength, it would have more angular resolution um, than we needed. For example, uh, the successor to the JWST is uh, a mission called WFIRST, uh, Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Its aperture is the same as Hubble's. It's an infrared telescope, uh, but their mission requires a very wide field of view, and they're not trying to see the early universe. And so their mirror is sized for their mirror objectives, you know, and it's smaller than JWST because it's right-sized for their objectives. So our goal in, in building space observatories is to meet the mission objectives, uh, but not go beyond that. Uh, these these uh, systems are very, very expensive. They're very complicated, and we don't want them to be more expensive or complicated than is actually necessary. Once you have that a mirror deployed in space, all that light is being redirected. Obviously, you have a, a array of sensors actually reading that light. Can you go into more detail of what specific detectors you have on board James Webb? Sure. Um, the, the wavelength range of the observatory uh, is 0.6 to 28 microns. And so that broad wavelength range uh, can't be addressed with a single detector uh, technology. So for the portion uh, that is uh, 0.6 to 5 microns, that chunk of spectrum, we're using uh, uh, what are called Mercad telluride detectors, uh, where the light sensitive element is an alloy of uh, mercury, cadmium, and tellurium. So it's an electronic detector. You know, like what you like the detector that might be in a camera that you uh, buy in a store or uh, have in your uh, smartphone. Uh, but the details of the detector are somewhat different, um, uh, owing to the uh, uh, the wavelengths that we're trying to observe. And these detectors also require cryogenic cooling. The wavelength range from five to twenty-eight microns is. Uh, uh, being addressed with a completely different kind of detector uh, that uses um, uh, silicon doped with arsenic. And those longer wavelength detectors have to operate even colder than the temperatures that uh, we were just talking about. Um, so our mid-infrared instrument that works from 5 microns to 28 microns, that whole instrument is cooled to an even lower temperature, about 6 Kelvin, 
uh, by a small mechanical cryo cooler. So that mechanical cryo cooler takes it from 40 Kelvin, the passively cooled in, uh, environment of the whole telescope, to this lower temperature uh, of 6 Kelvin. And um, so those are the detector technologies uh, that we're using. That's cold. Um, when, one question I have is how do you use multiple detectors on, like multiple types for the different wavelengths? Do you sp split the light when it comes through? Okay, so that whole wavelength range, in addition to using different detectors, we have to uh, use more than one science instrument to um, enable all the different types of observing capabilities uh, that we need to make the measurements we're trying to make. So uh, we have four science sensors in the instrument payload and also a fine guidance sensor that helps us point the telescope. So the first of those is uh, one that we call the NIRCAM, near-infrared camera. It's the main uh, imager of the JWST. It works from 0.6 to 5 microns. And its optical system is refractive. It uses uh, lenses. And uh, it breaks that wavelength range up into two channels uh, using a device called a dichroic beam splitter. And uh, each channel uses the same detector technology. And uh, in the optics of this instrument, uh, one can select various band-limiting filters. And uh, it also uh, has a device called a GRISM, which is uh, like a diffraction grating to allow uh, spectra to be taken. And so, um, that, and so that instrument will support uh, broadband uh, imagery, imagery with various uh, bandwidths. It has a coronagraphic uh, capability and uh, also a GRISM capability for slitless uh, spectroscopy. Then uh, we have our main near-infrared spectrometer. We call it the near-spec. It's a very unusual uh, instrument. Um, that instrument is designed, it's, it's, it's called a multi-object spectrometer, and it is the first multi-object spectrometer uh, to fly in space. Uh, we actually had to invent some technologies to make that uh, spectrometer uh, possible. Uh, these faint primeval galaxies that I mentioned, they're very faint. Uh, to observe them, it requires very, very long exposure times. And so if we uh, sought to observe those galaxies one at a time, we would never be able to observe enough of them within the life of the mission. So we had to design a spectrometer that will allow us to observe a hundred objects simultaneously, you know, and keep their spectra uh, separate. And so that instrument has diffraction gratings to produce the spectra, and then it also has uh, aperture control uh, that is uh, done with an array of microscopic shutters uh, that are individually controlled uh, under computer control. So uh, for any field of interesting objects on the sky, we can open a pattern of holes that match the, the pattern of objects that uh, we're looking at, the star pattern, if you will, and uh, then light passing through those holes 
passes through this spectrograph so that we get uh, a spectrum of each individual object. Then we have the mid-infrared instrument. That instrument operates from 5 to 28 microns, and it supports imagery and various kinds of spectroscopy uh, and also coronography. And then finally, uh, we have the nearest instrument, which is an instrument that's geared primarily toward exoplanets. It operates uh, from 1 to 5 uh, microns and uh, uh, supports uh, special spectroscopy uh, to enable us to uh, observe the atmospheres of exoplanets and understand their spectra. Uh, it also has um, a high contrast interferometric uh, imagery. And then finally, we have the fine guidance sensor, which is, as the name suggests, it's a guidance sensor. It can uh, see pointing error of one millionth of a degree, and uh, it's the primary sensor that we use to point the telescope at the objects of interest and keep that pointing suitably stable over the long exposure times uh, that we'll be using. Interesting. Um, with that uh, attitude sensor, uh, what um, kind of attitude uh, gyros does that feed into? Do you guys use uh, control moment gyroscopes or do you have active uh, thrusters built into the satellite? We have all of the above. I mean, we have station keeping thrusters the, the uh, you know, JWST is in orbit about the L2 point. We don't, we are not exactly at the L2 point because we need to stay out of the Earth's shadow. We're generating electricity with solar rays, so we don't want to be in the shadow. So we're in what's called a libration point orbit, an orbit with a six-month period about uh, the L2 point. And that orbit is unstable in the direction of the Earth-Sun line. So we need to maintain it with station-keeping thrusters. And the propellant for those thrusters is the life-limiting expendable of the JWST. Uh, the mission will uh, end uh, when that propellant uh, is exhausted. We have it uh, tanked for 10 years of operation uh, at L2. In addition to those station-keeping thrusters, uh, we also have what are called inertial reference units, and um, um, we uh, also have um, reaction wheels, uh, which are like flywheels that we use to inertially uh, point the JWST. So if we need to um, move the JWST from one object to another, uh, we're torquing against those reaction wheel flywheels. flywheels. So are all these different types of attitude control, uh, do they all serve a different purpose or are they all needed to work together since um, James Webb Space Telescope is so large and massive? Uh, yeah, it, it, on JW or even a, even a smaller telescope, uh, these all work together as a single system uh, to give us the pointing uh, capability that we need. Uh, there's also another element of that system, um, uh, a, a fast steering mirror. JWST is a, what's called a three-mirror anastigmat. 
So light comes in uh, and reflects from the primary mirror. It goes to the secondary mirror. Then it goes through a hole in the center of the primary mirror to a tertiary mirror. And then from there, it goes to a fast steering mirror, which is a mirror that's articulated under computer control before the light goes to the instruments. And so that articulated fast steering mirror allows us to uh, take out uh, vibration effects and uh, other small uh, disturbances that uh, could spoil the pointing. So uh, the fine guidance sensor, the IRUs, the reaction wheels, the thrusters, and the fast steering mirror all play together as a single system uh, to point the telescope. Very interesting. Uh, so the last major um, element of the satellite is obviously the sun shield. Uh, and so articles I've been reading, it's uh, about the size of a tennis court. It's made of these multiple uh, reflective layers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. It, it is really the size of a tennis court. It's uh, a pretty big item. Uh, it has an SPF of a million. So if you had this on the beach, you'd be very well protected. And, and that's the uh, thermal performance that we need uh, to allow JWST to cool uh, to its very low temperatures. And to do that, um, it has to have a very special and precise shape. It needs five layers to give it that, excuse me, SPF of a million. And the uh, material of the sunshade is a material called Kapton. It's thinner than a human hair. Uh, the sun-facing layer of the sunshade and the sun-facing surface is coated with silicon to allow it to withstand uh, the sun's radiation for 10 years. All the other layers are coated with aluminum, uh, which uh, give it the thermal performance. And then, you know, we had to figure out how to package that sunshade and have it unfold into this enormous uh, assembly with the five layers um, and have uh, its shape be very precisely controlled so that it uh, uh, doesn't uh, form a source of stray light that would uh, uh, impact the JWST uh, observing capability. So one thing I, I'm not uh, quite understanding um, with the sun shield is it's basically shading uh, the telescope, but why does it need multiple layers? Is that so that, um, like, is what's the what's the reason for having it uh, be multiple layers, even if the layers are super thin? Well, on the sunny side, we have kilowatts, and on the cold telescope facing side, we need milliwatts. And so, to to convert the kilowatts to milliwatts, we just can't do that in a single layer. Um, each, each layer has a, has a, uh, a certain thermal performance, and it takes five layers to give it uh, that ability to so completely uh, shield JWST uh, from uh, the sun thermally. Um, it not only takes five layers, but the layers have to have a very shape, a very specific shape so that radiation between the layers can escape um, out the sides in a way that uh, it won't impinge on the telescope. You said it escapes out the sides. Um, is it that like one layer is radiating to the next layer and the next layer is like reflecting and like bounces out until it escapes out the side? Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly right. That the first layer that's facing the sun 
It rejects a lot of you know, all the visible sunlight. But that layer um, it, it then becomes warm and starts emitting in the infrared. And so it's, it's giving its infrared emission to the next layer. And that next layer has to attenuate that further. And um, it does that in part by reflecting it. And so there's a back and forth reflection that eventually escapes out the side. But that next layer will also be a little bit warm uh, from what's impinging on it. And it, in turn, has its own self-emission. So, you know, you just play that process forward. And then by the time you get to five layers, it's good enough for JWST. A lot of the technology um, on James Webb, like you, you mentioned, you had to invent certain instrumentation that just wasn't around um, in 1996. But um, the mission lifetime is, you know, going on into the future. So... How are you dealing with um, obsolescence in terms of technology? So, like, stuff, things that weren't around in 96 um, are on the telescope in 2016. But in 2026, how, how is James Webb going to deal with um, all this growing technology and dealing with what's available today? Okay. That's another good question. The The... The space segment of JWST, every mission has a, a, you know, a part that is in space, and then there's a, a less glamorous but you know, equally critical part that's on the ground, receiving and dealing with the data. The space segment that we call it um, has a technology freeze that occurs long before launch. And this is something that you experience in your daily lives, you know, here, here at home. If, you, if you're going to remodel the kitchen of your house, you might have a long, rich discussion about what the new kitchen should be like. But there's a point in the job where the design has to be frozen so that the contractors can do their work. And so it is in the space business. So the technology freeze for the space segment of JWST was uh, somewhere around 2000. I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was that era. And that's fine. The technologies that we chose uh, for JWST uh, meet our requirements. And although there might be uh, better, different, cooler technologies available today, what we chose meets our requirements, so we're totally happy and there's no reason to replace any of it. Now in the ground segment, uh, the techno there is also a technology freeze date, but that happens much later. It's uh, you know only about now-ish for the JWST uh, ground segment. So the Science Center, which is uh, handling all of the data that comes down uh, from JWST, and doing all the uh, processing on that and distributing it to the community and archiving it uh, for all time, that science center is using uh, much more modern, up-to-date computers than the space segment has. And all of that is fine. Yeah, so um, the James Webb Space Telescope program has been this 20-year-long, basically, development cycle uh, do you see technologies that were either pioneered or have been thoroughly developed through this program going to other missions, something like the Sun Shield or the Folding Mirrors? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot of missions uh, need to deploy large structures 
in space. A lot of our future vision uh, for missions involves building telescopes that are bigger in diameter than available rockets and uh, deploying optically precise uh, things. So JWST, you know, pathfinds uh, a lot, uh, a lot of that. Some of the specific technologies uh, that we have developed have already been picked up by other missions uh, on uh, in space and sounding rockets uh, uh, and on the ground. Uh, the detectors that we developed for JWST are used, uh, you know, all over the world in all kinds of uh, ground-based applications. Uh, the micro-shutter technology that we uh, uh, developed for the near-spec instrument and have continued to develop for other mission applications has uh, a lot of applicability. And, it, you know, it's not just the technologies that we develop that actually go into the spacecraft, but the ground test uh, uh, also requires lots of technology that we've had to develop in, in those uh, uh, ground test technologies, measurement uh, tools, and so forth uh, have wide applicability to what we're building in the future. Yeah. Uh, so something that wasn't around in 1996 uh, were CubeSats and other small satellites. And we've seen over the past 15 years that market kind of explode. And NASA has a, a huge role in promoting those missions. Do you see that... Uh, uh, telescopes on small sats or nanosats or even fleets of uh, these nanosats um, having a role in space astronomy? Or do you also see a trend of big telescopes like James Webb and even larger ones into the future? Okay. Uh, CubeSats, um, they, they do have real role in space science. And we're, you know, we're, we're, that's a demonstrated real role in space science that we see today. And uh, uh, NASA and uh, other organizations have put a lot of effort into uh, figuring out how to uh, take uh, CubeSats uh, beyond a, you know, a, a college student um, uh, laboratory exercise to, to real tools for real science and real missions. Um, CubeSats, obviously, they're very small. Uh, the CubeSat industry is driven by the easy access to space. The, the, you know, the launch costs uh, for a CubeSat are very, very low. And so that's what's driving uh, the industry. And however, uh, their, their best applications are ones that are not photon starved. So for example, Earth science, uh, there's a, there are uh, good CubeSat. CubeSats can be a powerful tool for observing the Earth. They can be a powerful tool for observing the sun. Um, they might be tools that we could drop off at uh, other planets uh, in our solar system when we visit them with larger missions. But for astronomy, which is a photon-starved science, we typically need a collecting area, a mirror, that would be tough to enable with a CubeSat. And so I'm not expecting to see CubeSats be a major player for astronomy, uh, but they, they are and will continue to be a growing major player for Earth science, uh, heliophysics, and you know, possibly planetary science. 
Yeah. Do you see telescopes with even larger mirrors than James Webb coming to the future? Uh, we now have a lot of um, rockets in design uh, that have those much larger fairings, something like ITS that's 12 meters, SLS will be in online uh, soon, and Blue Origin also has their very big brother rocket. Uh, we're seeing those larger fairings. Do you see the opportunity for even larger telescopes? Uh, and do you think the folding mirror uh, design is worth it uh, once you have that larger diameter to get an even larger aperture? Or are those trade-offs um, not worth it if you have the transportation? Okay, that's another good question. Um, right now, NASA is planning, I, I mentioned that the successor mission to JWST is a mission called WFIRST, which is under construction now for a launch in approximately 2024-2025. That is being built as we speak. NASA is planning the successor of WFIRST now, and that mission will uh, start its uh, will start around 2025 and, and probably take 15 or 20 years uh, to build. So NASA has four studies underway now for what that mission should be, and they all involve uh, collecting area mirrors. Uh, that are um, uh, as big or bigger than uh, the JWST. They're all bigger than W first, that's for sure. So big mirrors uh, will be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, we, in my view, will be launching those big mirrors rather than assembling them in space, uh, at least in, in the near term, meaning the next uh, 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 20 years or so. And so the segmented mirror architecture uh, will also be with us. There is a limit to how large one can make a monolithic uh, mirror uh, for spaceflight. And uh, the segmented mirror architecture really uh, uh, facilitates large mirrors, e even if they don't have to be deployed. Uh, if you want to use a giant rocket like uh, the SLS, and the rocket is, you know, the mirror is not bigger than the rocket. Uh, there's still a strong advantage to a segmented uh, architecture. And of course, all the, uh, all the giant telescopes that we uh, build today on the ground you know, are segmented. Um, so the, the mission lifetime of the James Webb Space Telescope is um, upwards of a decade. Um, and for other missions, a number of other missions uh, for these big telescopes or even probes and, and rovers, um, they've sort of outlived their designed lifetime. Uh, a great example that comes to mind is Kepler, which survived um, like failures and scientists on the, here on the ground and engineers came up with ways um, to continue using that platform uh, despite the fact that it wasn't able to do its original mission anymore. So the lifetime of James Webb's like primary um, designed mission requires those propellants and, and other things that will run out eventually. Um, but are there possibilities for extended missions for James Webb, um, even after, say, the propellant for the reaction control thrusters runs out? And um, do you think that you're building uh, James Webb Space Telescope to last um, much longer than 
10 years? Okay. So uh, the formal engineering lifetime of, of JWSC is five years. And we have the uh, key expendable, uh, the propellant for the station keeping thrusters, tanked for 10 years. So when JWST launches, there will be a five-year baseline mission that simply proceeds. Then when we get to the end of that, NASA's procedure is to review the mission in, in something called a senior review, and then they extend the mission in two-year increments. So every two years, there'll be another review to determine, you know, is this facility um, still producing science that warrants its operations cost? So for JWST, we expect it to be extended, uh, assuming nothing breaks, of course. We, we ex uh, expect it to be extended until its propellant is gone. And uh, what happens after that? Um, the observatory will fall out of its orbit and drift away, uh, or you know, one could imagine a propellant replenishment mission would be possible you know, at that time, but there are no plans uh, for that. In contrast, uh, WFIRST, the successor of JWST, uh, is explicitly designed and planned uh, to be serviced in its L2 orbit. Back when we did JWST initial design in 1996, um, there, were, there was no robotic servicing technology available. And of course, the astronauts can't go to the L2 point. So, um, but that's changed today. Today, we do have uh, robotic um, uh, servicing capability uh, for satellites, particularly with respect to propellant replenishment. So, so that's the landscape. I would expect JWST to uh, be good for 10 years, maybe longer than that. The, the, uh, the um, duration that will be supported by the propellant on board um, depends on how efficiently the telescope is used. Uh, the telescope will be operated by the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, the same institute that operates the Hubble. They're a very, very experienced group and I would imagine that they will tease uh, every bit of efficiency uh, out of this uh, machine when we deliver it to orbit. And, you know, they may, they may be able to stretch that fuel out even more than 10 years. So we'll just have to wait and see. We're, we're getting close to um, running out of time here. I have one last question, um, and this is related to um, the lifetime of James Webb. If something would happen to fail, um, like a a reaction wheel or something like Kepler, is the system robust enough to carry on with a reduced mission? Um, or is everything so finely tuned to perform its primary mission um, due to the scope and, and sensitivity of things that um, a failure might be the end of James Webb? Yeah, when we design a mission like this, um, there, there are two you know, two uh, principles or aspects that we, you know, would consider carefully. We put in lots and lots of redundancy so that uh, things can fail and there's no impact to the mission at all. And then in addition to that, we design the system to exhibit what's called graceful degradation. 
meaning when the redundancy doesn't protect us and something actually fails, it's not catastrophic for the mission. You know, some mission requirement um, uh, might be violated, but uh, the, the degradation is, is graceful and limited so that you still have uh, a useful system. You know, you might lose a particular observing mode, but all the other modes would be fine, something like that. So we designed these things to be robust as possible. And uh, what you saw on Kepler and a lot of our uh, other spacecraft that get into that situation, um, it's, the, it's the combined result of ingenuity on the ground, but also good design of the system uh, in the first place, design for uh, uh, redundancy to avoid the failure and graceful degradation so that the impact of a failure uh, is not mission ending. So all, all this science and technology uh, aboard the James Webb Space Telescope is extremely fascinating um, and very, very exciting uh, for me as uh, a young engineer and, and space enthusiast. Um, what, what's the next milestone for the James Webb uh, project? Um, it's currently undergoing testing, is that correct? What's the next major um, thing we can look forward to? Well, right now, the, um, the, tele the observatory... Um, consisting of the telescope and the science instrument module is undergoing uh, vibration and acoustic testing here at Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, that testing is designed to ensure that it can survive the rocket flight to space. Uh, when we finish that uh, later this year, we'll send it to Johnson Space Flight Center where it will begin that end-to-end -end optical test in the giant uh, chamber A. Uh, then when we finish with that, uh, we will send it to Northrop Grumman uh, uh, Space Technologies in Redondo Beach, California, where they will integrate the spacecraft and the sunshield uh, to the assembly. And then we will put it on a boat and send it through the Panama Canal to uh, the launch site, Karoo Launch Center, uh, which is in French Guiana on the uh, east coast of uh, South America. And the best way to keep track of all this is to uh, follow our Twitter feed, um, at Web Telescope, hashtag JWST, uh, or to look at our website. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, and uh, we're on all the social media uh, outlets where you can find all kinds of videos and pictures. But uh, Twitter and our website is a great way to keep abreast of what's happening. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we've been speaking with Matt Greenhouse, who's a project scientist for the Science Instrument Payload of the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA Goddard. Uh, we've been speaking to him via Skype. Thanks a lot, Matt, for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpexCast, the podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. We value your input greatly and would love to hear from you, whether it be a suggestion for a new episode or some comments you have about the show itself. You can get in touch with us by sending an email to specscast at gmail.com, sending us a tweet at RITSpecs, or contacting us through our website, specs.rit.edu slash specscast. Our intro music was provided by 
Nelson Scott. You can check out his new album on Spotify, iTunes, or pretty much anywhere. Uh, also check out his SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com slash thenelsonscott. One last big thank you to NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. They've been amazingly helpful getting us in touch with some really incredible scientists and engineers to talk about space. Um, Also, thank you to Brendan Byrne from Are We There Yet? podcast who put us in touch. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on SpexCast.